The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, in chapter 6, reading from verse 10 to verse 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now, in considering this great statement, we are at the moment in particular examining the phrase, the wiles of the devil. The apostle teaches here that from the very commencement and origin of the Christian church, the devil has been busy and active with all his power and subtlety and wiliness in an endeavor and an attempt to confuse Christian people and thereby to bring God's work in Christ into disrepute. And uh, we are examining the ways in which the devil uh, has done and is still doing this very thing. We've uh, classified the wiles of the devil into two main groups, the general activities and the more personal, individual activities. But still we are considering the more general activities. And we have seen that these uh, have taken various forms, heresies, for instance. Heresies are undoubtedly the work of the devil. In the same way, apostasy, as illustrated, for instance, in the Church of Rome, is another manifestation of the activity of the devil. And then we went on to consider the sin of schism, a wrong division in the church, false division. Again, it's the work of the devil. And now we are considering the whole question of the cults. The cults which have raised their heads and troubled the church from the very beginning, and which are doing so at the present time, in an unusually aggressive manner. Now we've seen that there's nothing surprising in the fact that the cult should be so active at the present time. They always tend to come at a time of crisis and of trouble and of difficulty for people. That gives them their opportunity. But let us say another thing, which perhaps I didn't emphasize sufficiently last Sunday morning. The cults, in one way are a very striking and uh, thorough criticism of uh, the Christian church in this way. It is quite clear that if the Christian church were functioning as she should be, the cults would never have an opportunity at all. So the appearance of cults is a condemnation of the Christian church because of her failure. Now, people, in other words, are looking for life. They're looking for power. They're looking for certainty. They're in a difficult world. They've got their personal problems as well as the more general problems. And they're baffled and bewildered. And they're looking round for something which is authoritative and which can help them. And there is no question at all that it is because so many of them feel that having looked to the Christian church and having failed to find satisfaction that they turn elsewhere. Now, it's not surprising, of course, that uh, if they simply look at the Christian church, which is uh, preaching something which is not gospel, if they turn simply to that liberal, modernistic, 
representation of the gospel, it's not a bit surprising that they've turned to the cults because there is no salvation in that preaching. That's simply a kind of moralism which tells men to live a better life, to pull themselves together, to do this or that. And they've already failed to do that. So they don't want exhortation, they want something which can deliver them. And that old modernistic liberal teaching could not deliver anybody. It never did. It never can. It's got no power in it. It's just ethics and morality. Not surprising, therefore, I say, that they've turned away from that to the cults. But let us be equally honest and say this, that a dead orthodoxy is equally useless and valueless. If they confront people who are perfectly orthodox, but always miserable, always moaning, always complaining about their sins and their failures, and who look wretched and unhappy, well, it's not a bit surprising that they turn to the cults. They're already miserable themselves, and they don't want to be made more miserable. They don't merely want to be told how difficult it all is and how everybody fails. It's because of a dead orthodoxy, likewise, that many have turned to the cults. They've got an instinctive kind of feeling that there is life, that there's power available. And not finding it in the Christian church, they, I say, turn elsewhere for the satisfaction of their needs. Well, now then, that is, I think, the explanation of why the cults have flourished as they have flourished. And not only the cults. Let us be sure of this. Let us remind ourselves of this. To the extent that Roman Catholicism is on the increase in this country, it is to that extent that Protestantism has lost its power and its life. You always get it. A dead Protestantism is the most wonderful breeding ground for Roman Catholicism as well as the cults and the various other religions of the world. And there's only one answer, and that is a living, powerful, virile, true New Testament Christianity. Very well then, all this, you see, makes it all the more urgent for us to apply various tests to these agencies that are round and about us and which seem to be offering people just what they want. Now then, it's just here we see the importance of testing the claims which are made by the cults. You remember we are taking them all together we are, because there are certain basic principles common to them all. And then you can apply these tests to any particular teaching that may confront you. Now, it's obvious, isn't it, that the mere test of doing good is not enough. Now, that's an argument that's often used. They say, but surely you can't be opposed to this. Look at the good it's doing. You've often met that argument. The argument is that anything that does good must be of God, and Christianity should welcome it. Anything that makes us feel better must be good, must be right, therefore. Anything that changes our lives from one of failure to one of success must be right. Anything that uh, uh, helps us to give up certain sins or certain bad practices that have ruined our lives, anything that helps us to do that, it's argued, must be good. It must be of God. And Christianity, surely, the argument goes, mustn't be opposed to these things. Anything that improves a man individually or improves men collectively and gives them a sense of release and of liberty and of happiness and of power must surely be of God and must come under the general umbrella and heading of Christianity. Well now, why do I say that those tests are not enough? The answer is, of course, that it's just at that point that the devil's wiles become most evident and obvious. 
Because there are many agencies in the world this morning that don't believe in God at all and which ridicule Christianity that can do every one of those things. There are many agencies in the world that simply ridicule the Bible and all its teaching. But they can do a lot of good and are doing good. They can make people feel very happy. They can give them release and deliverance. Deliver them from worry and anxiety. Coism does that. Coism has got nothing to do with Christianity at all, but it's no use disputing the fact that coism has helped many people and still does. Such is the relationship between mind and matter, you see. You say to yourself every day and in every way, I'm feeling better and better. Well, you probably will. And it's all right. Now, I'm not here to say that that isn't good, but the question I'm raising is, is it of necessity Christian because it's good? Not only that. You are psychotherapists and psychiatrists can do this kind of work and are doing it. They can help people, deliver them from certain fears and phobias. Indeed, there are even physical treatments that can do this. So you see, the moment you say that anything that does good must of necessity be Christian and must of necessity be true, you've already capitulated to the devil. No, no, these tests are not sufficient. These general tests of doing good and making people feel happier and better are indeed even dangerous. The tests we apply must never be merely utilitarian. We must have other tests which are objective. We must have uh, tests uh, which give us uh, certain specific standards. Why is this necessary? Well, for this reason. That according to the whole teaching of the Bible, what matters finally and supremely is not how you and I feel, but our relationship to God. You see, the Pharisee in our Lord's parable of the Pharisee and the publican that went up into the temple to pray, the Pharisee had no problems at all. He had no complaint. He is indeed in such a happy state that he can say to God, I, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, and especially as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give a tenth of my goods to the poor. No problems whatsoever. Good men, moral men, religious men doing a lot of good, helping other people. No worries, no troubles. All is well. Well... What have you got to say? Well, you remember what our Lord said? That man did not go down to his house justified. You see, this, this is a very subtle matter. This is where the wiles of the devil comes in. What matters is not how you and I feel, but it's our relationship to God. And any agency that makes me feel I'm all right, if my relationship to God is not right, is of the devil. It's my greatest danger. Oh, yes, it's done me a lot of good. It may do a lot of good to society. It may be a very good thing in a social sense. All I'm concerned to say is this, that it is not of necessity, therefore, Christian. And what the apostle is concerned about, and what we must be concerned about is, that we are specifically and definitely Christian. Very well. All those general tests will not avail us. We've got to have something more definite, more particular, more precise. We've considered some of them already. We've taken the origin of these, going to the origin of these, see how they've started. Most interesting. Uh, what is their ultimate authority? Is it this or is it a vision that somebody's had or a gold plates which uh, they suddenly, miraculously uh, discovered? 
uh, which had been written centuries ago, the sort of thing that uh, has given rise to Mormonism. Then uh, you've got to notice the way in which these always deny one or the other or perhaps all of the basic doctrines, the doctrine of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, creation, sin, redemption, and even the question of prayer. But now let's go on from that point. What further tests have we? Well, now here is another which always seems to me to be of particular interest and importance. Always examine the way in which these cults tell you that the blessing will come to you. Now they offer you all that you need. Peace, happiness, release, so on, guidance, healing, maybe one of, any one of these things or all of them mixed up together. But having uh, put up your doctrinal tests in that uh, objective manner, go on and apply this further test. How do they tell you the blessing will come to you? Or how do they claim that the blessing has come to them? And this is what you will find always. That the blessing offered never is based upon exposition of the New Testament. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. That you will find that uh, you are told that the blessing will come to you if you accept a given formula. Or if you take uh, the proffered idea that is put before you. It's always an idea or a formula or a method. This idea suddenly comes to a man. He may have heard it, he claims, in a vision. Or he may have had it suddenly when he began to think. And from that one idea he elaborates his system. So what is offered to you always is this particular system, this formula, this idea that you have now got to put into practice. The result is that you will uh, never find that they put their teaching in form of texts or statements which you find in the New Testament. The teaching is never authenticated from the scripture. They're not concerned to do that. Why? Well, because they never got it from the scripture. You see, it's always come in some other way, as we saw in discussing the origin last Sunday. Now, that is a very important and a, a very characteristic, uh, very prominent characteristic of this teaching. It isn't that they've been studying and expanding or making an exegesis of the scriptures and then present their teaching as the result of doing that. No, no. It's come suddenly from outside somewhere and here it is, the, the formula, and it's given to you. I say it's not substantiated from the scriptures. They don't work it out in terms of texts. Now you see the obvious contrast. You read the works of any of the great teachers of the Christian church. And at this point I can say whether they were Roman Catholic or Protestant throughout the centuries. You will find that in the main it has always been a matter of exposition of the scripture. Take all the great confessions of faith. Take the creeds. They are always substantiated by scriptural quotations. If you have a book with the creeds or these confessions, you'll notice that there's either a footnote at the bottom or even in the text they'll refer to you to certain scriptures. In other words, they are synopses of the doctrine that is taught in the Bible. But not so with the cults. There is none of this direct relationship with the scriptures. It's just this formula. 
And of course it follows from that that uh, in their teaching you get nothing but a constant repetition of this one formula. It's always one thing, one idea, one formula and nothing else. Such uh, teachings as the cults have uh, always lack variety. They always lack the element of largeness and of greatness. The sense of vastness and of glory which you always find when you come to the Bible itself. Have you noticed that? You see, the Bible's a very big book, isn't it? And a long book. And here are these epistles, how expensive they are and how they open out vistas and how they stimulate your imagination and lead you into ever greater realms. And there's always a growth and a development. But never with the cults. It's just the one formula and it's all in that. And there's nothing big and nothing glorious and wonderful no, it's, it's always confined to this one thing, never dependent upon an exposition of the scriptures. And as another part of this self-same point, it is, of course, nearly always and universally true to say of these cults that the teaching ultimately depends upon the personal testimony of the people who belong to it before you. So you will find that they don't so much expand the scriptures to you and uh, give you the doctrine concerning God the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and salvation. No, what they do is they say, now I was once upon a time in this condition. They're always talking about themselves, always giving you their experience, always telling you what happened to them with the implication that if you only accept the formula, it'll happen to you also. Now, in other words, I'm concerned here about the whole method, the methodology of the thing is entirely different. It's not scriptural in any respect. But it is the formula plus the personal testimony of what happened to me as the result of accepting and applying the formula in my own life. You're going to do likewise and you'll have the same thing. Now, I think that's a very important point because that is not the Christian method at all. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. I know that there are some good evangelical Christians who are imitating the cults today, but thereby they're doing a great disservice to the Christian cause. We are to preach Christ Jesus as Lord. It is to be an exposition of the truth of God. We are not to be subjective in that sense. We are not to start with ourselves and end with ourselves and recommend Christianity simply because it does this, that and the other. That's the method of the cults. It's not the Christian method. We are to present an objective truth, the exposition of the New Testament message. That, I say, is one of the fundamental differences in method between the cults and Christianity. But now let me go to a second point, which is this. That not only is their, is their teaching not based upon the New Testament teaching, it is even unlike the New Testament teaching. In what respects? Well, here are some of them. That the formula or the practical teaching which they give you is never the outworking of or a deduction from the doctrine of the New Testament. This is very important. All these cults start invariably on the practical level. And that is where the subtlety comes in. 
Oh, they say, you listen to us. Those people in those churches, they preach doctrine. Listen to that man, Sunday morning, always some doctrine, far away. And all that intellectual aspect doesn't help you. They say what you need is help. So they start on the practical level. Now that's the mark of the devil always. To start at the practical level is always absolutely fatal because you'll have no standard of judgment. The moment you start with the pragmatic, the utilitarian, I say you're already defeated by the devil. Why? Well, for this reason. The New Testament never starts with the practical. How often have I said that I wonder from this pulpit? Look at this great epistle to the Ephesians. Take that first verse in chapter 4. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that he walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now, that's very practical, isn't it? Yes, but you notice it's only at the beginning of chapter 4. Halfway through the epistle, he has already written three chapters. And what have they got? Practical? No, no. Pure doctrine. Great, glorious doctrine. And the epistle never comes to the practical until he has first laid down the doctrine. In other words, as I'm never tired of reminding you, the way the New Testament brings in the practical is always by the word therefore. What you do in practice is always a deduction from what you believe. And if you reverse those orders, you're done for. You don't start with your practice. You start with your doctrine. And if you haven't got a therefore, and a therefore which comes out of this, it's a cult, and it isn't the New Testament teaching. It isn't Christianity. But you will find that the cults never do this. They always start on that practical level. And what they've got is never a deduction from doctrine, but something which works in practice. The idea that came to the man, the formula that he suddenly elaborated, and you just take this, there you are. It's never a deduction, and if it isn't, it isn't Christianity. Or, let me put it secondly in this way, under this heading you will find that they never give the impression that uh, what's going to happen to you is the result of the Holy Spirit working in you. No, no, they don't mention the Holy Spirit generally. But you see, Christianity is essentially this, that the Holy Spirit is given to us. And here he is within us, whether we are conscious of him or not, and he's ever stimulating us, working in us, pointing us to the teaching, enabling us to put it into practice and to understand it and so on. Always that. But never with the other. They just come to you as you are. They say, you can start now. Here it is. You do this. Application of the formula. No impression given whatsoever that it is something that God worketh in us both to will and to do. That's Christianity, isn't it? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And that in turn brings me to a third point which uh, was included in the verse I've just quoted from Philippians 2. Fear and trembling. There's never much fear and trembling amongst the cults. But there is a good deal of glibness. There is a great deal of self-satisfaction. Almost a boastfulness. I regret to have to say this, but it's the truth. There's not much humility about the devotees of the cults. They've arrived. They've got it. But says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. They say there's nothing to fear. I was like that. Look at me now. All's well. Wonderful. Full of boasting and almost an arrogance. 
It's the antithesis of what you find in Christianity. Then let's go on to another characteristic. You will always find that the cults make a great deal of this point, that this formula, this method of theirs is quite simple. Its glory is its simplicity. Marvelous, wonderful. They say, of course, these people working through these New Testament epistles, taking all that time, it's such utter nonsense. It's as here it is. You needn't bother to go through your New Testament. Take this formula, apply this idea. You see, it has all the characteristics, hasn't it, of the patent medicine, the quack remedy. That's their great feature always, and that's the point made by the advertisers. Simple. Nothing involved. Always going to save you a lot of trouble. And uh, here it is. It's a wonderful remedy. It's all inclusive. It'll do everything. Just this one thing. You don't need anything else. This will cover all your problems. They'll all be solved. Whatever the aches and pains of your soul. Take this and all is well. You've noticed that characteristic of them. This uh, superb confidence and salesmanship and especially this all-inclusive characteristic. Indeed, some of them not only say that they'll solve all the problems of the individual, but they'll solve the whole problem of the world and of politics quite easily. All you've got to do is to apply this formula. Everything's all right. No further troubles. But you know, the Bible doesn't, doesn't speak like that, does it? The Bible's very different. If you read, for instance, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, well, you know, you get a picture of a man who's very different from the devotees of the cults. Listen to Paul. This is how he writes. He says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body, and so on. In other words, you see, there's none of this cheeriness, brightness, and supreme confidence and satisfaction. The apostle is triumphing gloriously. Yes, but as a Christian, and there's a note of seriousness, and of urgency, a note of the realization of the immensity of the problem and the need of care and of wariness. That's the typical New Testament statement, isn't it? But there is in these cults always an element of what I'm constrained to describe as childishness. It's much too simple. It's much too easy. It's a kind of wishful thinking. No problems recognized. Everything dismissed. Everything solved. It's all so simple, they say. And you know, any teaching, though it may be given by evangelical Christians, which keeps on saying it's quite simple, your sanctification, quite simple, no problem. Now that's the cults. That is not Christianity. The Apostle Paul never used such an expression. He'd rather does what he does in this epistle to the Ephesians in chapters 4, 5, and 6. He blends his doctrine and application, works it out. The seriousness of the thing is here. It is not easy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we are up against these powers. And any impression that it's all quite simple is false to the New Testament teaching. And I add one other point under this particular heading. Another great characteristic of the cults is, of course, that they offer you the cure, the blessing, at once. It's the shortcut method, of course, and that's why it succeeds. Because, you see, if you tell people, well, now, look here, all right, you, you've become Christian, you are converted. 
Thank God. But now don't run away with the notion that uh, henceforward uh, your whole life can be described like this. They all lived happily ever afterward. Now says the New Testament, you mustn't do that. That's quite wrong. The New Testament says, look here, you're in a very difficult world. It's a sinful world. It's an evil world. It is a world that is dominated by the devil and his cohorts, these principalities and powers. Look here, says the Bible. It'll take you all that you've got to stand on your feet at all. Indeed, you'll need the whole armor of God. You'll need to be strengthened with power and by might in the inner man. You'll need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then you'll be able to stand and only then. Well, now then, to arms, could you like men be strong? That's New Testament, isn't it? Ah, oh, well, says the typical lazy modern. I don't want that. I thought Christianity was something that solved all my problems, put everything on the plate before me. I thought I just reclined in this uh, celestial tram car, which took me to heaven and I did no more. Uh, are you telling me that I've got to struggle and fight, watch, pray, fast, sweat? I don't want that. I want something that really solves my problem. And the cults come along and said, quite right, of course. And you see, they say, look here, that's all nonsense. That's not Christianity at all. This is Christianity. You believe this, you apply this formula, and immediately all will be well. They don't talk about growth in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. They don't talk about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's no process of mortification of the body and of the flesh here. No, no. Immediate arrival at perfection. And all you've got to do is to keep yourself there. You arrive at your absolute position immediately. And all you've got to do is go on keeping there. And all problem is gone. There's no struggle left. There's no difficulty to solve whatsoever. It's all been done, and done at once. Shortcuts. Oh, this is the most valuable test, this. Anything that offers a spiritual shortcut, and I don't care whether it calls itself evangelical Christian or not, it is not New Testament Christianity. There are no shortcuts here. None whatsoever. It's the outworking of this mighty doctrine which you now believe by the power of the Spirit and the Spirit working in you. It is watching. It is praying. It is mortifying the deeds of the body. It's keeping under your body. It's pummeling, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 9.27, hitting it until it's black and blue. I keep under my body. That's Christianity in New Testament terms. But it's the entire contrast to the cults which do it all so simply and do it all at once. No, no, it is not like the New Testament in its teaching. And then I want to say just another thing, another heading which I'd like to give you is this. Let us look at the nature of the blessing which is offered. And it's an excellent discriminating point once more. What is the character of the nature of the blessing that is offered to us by the cults? Well, you'll find invariably, it always starts with you. In a sense, I've already been saying that, because it starts on the practical level. It always starts with you. It always comes to you and tells you that it can do this, that, and the other for you. What do you need? What's your trouble? What's the matter with you? That's how the cult approaches you. What are you looking for? Are you worried and troubled? Do you find it difficult to sleep at night? Do you find it difficult to forget your business or your profession? Are you over-anxious and burdened and worried? 
Are you looking for that? Are you looking for peace? You're looking for guidance, I wonder. You don't quite know what to do, and there you are, dithering. Oh, if only you could have something that gave you infallible guidance always. How wonderful it would be. All right, says the cult, come along. Do you want consolation? Are you bereaved and sorrowing? Have you lost some dear one? And is your whole life ruined? Do you want consolation and comfort? Would you like perhaps to be in touch with your loved one who's gone? That's how they come. Or is your trouble that you're being defeated by some particular thing that keeps on cropping up in your life? Is there some practice or habit or sin that's getting you down? Do you want to be rid of that? Now, that's the method of the cults always. And, of course, that's why they succeed. You see, they, they come to you at the point of your need. And they come to you as friends. They've got the very thing that you want just where you are. Direct and immediate. Then sometimes, of course, it's health, physical healing, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, there, you see, is the nature of the blessing offered. It starts with us. It's something for us and something that we need immediately. It's solving one of these problems which are worrying and perplexing us and which we are so acutely aware of. But what is the gospel method? Do you know it isn't that? What is the first thing in the gospel? And the answer is, it is the knowledge of God. That's the great message of the Bible from beginning to end. Why did the Son of God come into this world? The answer is he came, as Peter puts it, to bring us to God. Or listen to Paul saying it. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ, that's it. Not my aches and pains, not my guidance, not my worry. No, no. To know God. Why? Well, because if I'm right there, these other things will go. You don't start and stop with them and leave out God altogether. You start with God. The whole object of Christianity is to bring us to a knowledge of God as God. And a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is life eternal. What is it? That I no longer worry? Or that I've got rid of that thing that got me down? No, no. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's the beginning. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Spirit. What else? Well, a knowledge of God's great plan and purpose. An understanding of the whole of history and the course of the universe and of the end and all. That's Christianity. But these cults never mention it. Holiness, here's another thing. Not that I stop doing that thing, no, no, but that I positively be made holy. There are men who never drink, never gamble, never committed adultery, never smoked, never went to a cinema, but they're not holy. They're self-satisfied little Pharisees. They're not holy, that's not holiness. Holiness isn't something negative, it's positive. It is to be like God. Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. They know, they know nothing about that. They never mention it. Holiness doesn't just mean getting victory over particular sins. It is, I say, to be like God, who is himself holy. And another thing. Christianity gives very great prominence to what it calls the hope of glory. Oh, I know this is ridicule today, but it's New Testament Christianity. The New Testament, you know, attaches much greater significance to the world that is to come than it does to this world. The hope of glory. 
Our citizenship is in heaven. And he tells us about this glory. Have you ever heard the cults doing that? Of course not. They're not interested. You see, they just want to help you while you're here. This life, you. You are at the center. So they talk about themselves and then you'll start talking about yourself. And you'll always be giving your experience. I was once failing like this. Now I've had complete release and deliverance. And so you go on. Not a word about the hope of glory. Not a word about heaven and that great regeneration which is to come. The new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. As I've told you already, it's just this little formula. There's nothing vast and grand and glorious and immense leading a man ever onwards and forwards and thrilling him to the depth. Just this little circle. Always going round and round in it and repeating it. No, no. The type of blessing that is given is altogether and entirely different. And that brings me to my last word on this matter, which is this. It's a kind of summing up of all I've been saying, but I want to emphasize it above everything. Because this is my reason for hating the cults. And we must hate them. Why? Well, because they not only fail at the acid test, but are found even to be opposed to that which is indicated by the acid test, the sensitive test that settles it once and forever. What's that? Ah, it's this. It is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Any movement or teaching, I don't care how much good it may do, and I'll grant, I have granted, that they can do great good. Any movement or teaching that doesn't make the Lord Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross and his glorious resurrection an absolute necessity and absolutely central is not Christian. And is therefore a manifestation of the wiles of the devil, because it persuades people that it is Christian. In other words, any teaching or any movement which says that you can have this blessing or that blessing, without first of all believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and as the Savior of your soul, and as your Lord, without whom you have nothing, is a denial of Christianity. If your cult or your teaching or whatever it is can include Jews, Mohammedans, anybody, and give them the blessing without their acknowledging and confessing that he and he alone is the Son of God and that he and he alone can save because he died for our sins, any blessing that you get apart from that is a denial of Christianity. And you must reject it with hatred. Why? Well, for this reason. That the biblical teaching is that there is no knowledge of God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten that is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. That's why he came. Oh, you can learn certain things about God through nature and history and providence. You'll never know God truly. Indeed, I go further, there is no access to God except through the Lord Jesus Christ. Any man or any teaching who tells you that he can find God and have access to God, except he goes in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified, is a denial of New Testament Christianity, however much good it may do. Because Christ himself said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, which means no man can come unto the Father, but by me. Now that's absolute and categorical. There is no access to God, there is no knowledge of God as Savior and Deliverer and as Blesser, except in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as the author of the epistle to the Hebrews puts it, Having therefore, brethren, beloved, confidence and access into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. Oh, a movement that bypasses that, that says the blood of Christ isn't necessary, is antichrist. It is opposed to God and his Christ. Let it do as much good as it can. That's the wiles of the devil as an angel of light, doing good and deluding people. There is no entry into the holiest of all except by the blood of Jesus. And I don't care whether it's in the Christian church, whether it calls itself Christian, whatever it may call itself. If it says you can get to God and know God and be blessed of God, apart from the blood of Christ, it is a denial of this central teaching. It is an insult to God and his dear and blessed Son. Or I'll put it like this, any teaching that tells you that you can have any blessing apart from him is a denial of this self-same truth. Because every blessing that comes to us comes in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Paul put it in Colossians 2, which we read at the beginning in verse 3. That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says it again, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Every blessing that ever comes to men comes solely in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And any blessing that is offered you apart from him and his death and his blood is a denial of the faith. And this is why I speak with passion and we all should. It's an insult to him. It is an insult to his all-sufficiency. There's no need of the cults. Why not? Well, because everything they offer is given in Christ. They have no right to exist. They're an insult to him. They're very arising. Is an insult to him. There is nothing he cannot give. What is he? He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He is the all and in all. And I am complete in him. A man who tells me that Christ isn't enough, that he needs another formula, is an insult to Christ. He's denying him. Christ has everything because he is everything. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, says Paul. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. He knows how to be full and he knows how to be empty. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, listen to it again, in nothing be anxious, 
But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If you are even looking at the cults and saying, I wonder whether they can help me, you've already denied Christ. There is nothing that he can't give you. He's everything. He's the all and in all. Listen to this. Charles Wesley, he was constantly saying it. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. And yet people are turning to the cults. It's an insult to him. Listen to Wesley. Thou hidden source of calm repose, thou all-sufficient love divine, my help and refuge from my foes, secure I am if thou art mine. And lo, from sin and grief and shame, I hide me, Jesus, in thy name. Thy mighty name salvation is and keeps my happy soul above. Comfort it brings and power and peace and joy and everlasting love. To me with thy dear name are given pardon and holiness and heaven, Jesus. My all in all thou art, my rest in toil, my knees in pain, the medicine of my broken heart, in war my peace, in loss my gain, my smile beneath the tyrant's frown, in shame my glory and my crown, in want my plentiful supply, in weakness mine almighty power, in bonds my perfect liberty, my light in Satan's darkest hour, my help and stay whene'er I call. My life in death, my heaven, my all. And if you think that he isn't enough, and that you must turn to cults for help or aid or assistance, if you say he needs any help or assistance, you're denying him, you're insulting him. It's the wiles of the devil. This faith which has supported and strengthened and blessed the saints, Throughout the running centuries, and which has stood every conceivable test is enough. You needn't go to some newfangled idea that only began last century, or in this century. Go back to the old, old story which is ever new and ever true. Come back to the fountain, the source of every blessing. Come back to the everlasting God and his Son, our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit will enter you, and your every need will be supplied, but only in that way. Very well. Let us join in singing that hymn I've just read to you, hymn number 471. Thou hidden source of calm repose, thou all-sufficient love divine. Now remember, this is a hymn of praise and of thanksgiving. We've been dragging every single hymn this morning. God forbid we should ruin this. Let us sing it brightly, cheerfully, believing it as we sing it. 471.